Hello everyone. As many of us are currently confined at home in many places of the world, and while we keep in our minds and in our hearts those who have no choice but to be at risk from the ongoing worldwide pandemic because they're doctors, nurses, workers, homeless, incarcerated, or in any other precarious situation, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast to use this time to reflect and organize. The concept is very simple. Every day, we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. We thank you very much for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone. Today we are having our fifth episode of the Funambulist Daily Podcast in Confinement, a moment of true decolonization. And our guest is uh, Amy McQuire, uh, who is a Darumbal and South Sea Islander journalist and writer with 12 years experience in Aboriginal and independent media. Uh, and uh, who is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, looking at media representation of violence against Aboriginal women. And I might add that uh, we had the great, I had the fantastic pleasure to meet Amy at this uh, incredible conference called Black and Palestinian Solidarity Conference in Melbourne a few months ago now. Uh, hello, Amy. Oh, hello. It's so good to be here, Leopold. And it was so good to meet you as well in Melbourne. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking some of your time today to to talk to for the podcast. Um, well, would, should we should we should we get right to it? And uh, would you tell me what is the moment of true decolonization you wanted to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's only one specific moment of decolonization, but for me, yeah. it's always um, the assertion of indigenous presence on land, and I think that's. That's the main thing, and I think that's the most threatening thing about decolonisation. Um, because I think what we've seen in the past or currently, and I think it's anything with any sort of terminology that comes out, is that um, it's appropriated or co-opted or watered down so quickly. And I think that's what, in some sense, has happened in Australia, at least in the Australian context, to decolonisation. Like, I always worry when things are accepted so quickly, particularly by you know, the white mainstream when it comes to Indigenous peoples, and I'm talking about Australia most specifically. Um, but for me, I think it begins with the assertion of, of presence because in Australia what happened was um, obviously they wanted to clear the land of any sort of black or Indigenous presence here. Um, and so for us to, to be here and to be asserting that um, is directly in opposition um, to any sort of um, colonial project or ongoing colonial project. Um, and so what I'm very interested in particularly is around Aboriginal women specifically um, and how Aboriginal women have been um, slandered and um, removed from that and in the very different ways that, that that has happened. So for me, I think I don't even know if there's one moment, there's always moments of um, decolonisation whenever I see Aboriginal women asserting their presence. Um, in any sort of way, um, you know, in in any sort of way that is really threatening um, to sort of what is happening in Australia at the moment. And 
what we see is, you know, continual um, devaluation and dehumanisation of Aboriginal women because that's what they need to do in order to justify their presence on this land. So that's what I say. I wouldn't say it was only one specific moment. For me, it's so many moments where I see Aboriginal women specifically just standing up and, and making their presence. And it can be in the smallest little, you know, resistance. It can be the smallest moment. It could be, um, you know, the Aboriginal woman who didn't get served at the shop and, and the way she contests that or the way she stands up against that. Or it could be the, the woman who feed, who takes in all her grannies, you know, and, and feeds them and looks after them. Um, every day it can be um, the bigger things like um, I'm just thinking of like a senator Nova Paris who was one of our first Aboriginal women senators who actually stood up to George Brandis another senator who was basically trying to water down the country's racial discrimination laws and saying people actually have the right to be bigots you know so it's just for me it's just the presence of Aboriginal women in so many different ways in so many different contexts that is never valued and continually silenced and made invisible um, because that's what justifies white presence on this land, you know. That's a threat um, in every different way, being unapologetically black and Aboriginal in this country and black and Aboriginal and as a woman. Because I think there are very specific ways Aboriginal women were hurt and um, violence was um, wrought upon the bodies of Aboriginal women to justify what happened over in this country. Could you perhaps tell us about uh, your own work in relation to this presence? Yeah, um, so currently, and it's been something that I've been doing over the past 12 years from when I first began journalism, and it has to do with the way that um, Australia uses um, the conversation around violence against Aboriginal women to actually further more violence against us. So it's a bit, it's, um, a bit complicated, but basically over the past 200 years, Aboriginal women have been um, seen in very, very different violent representations, so as, you know, over highly sexualized, promiscuous or um, just really horrendous representations that were used to devalue us and dehumanise us, and that has stretched on into the present and that still has um, currency today in the way Aboriginal women are portrayed by the media. So I started um, being interested in this basically from the very first time the beginning of my journalism career because I started when um, in the midst of a child a moral panic over child sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities and basically what happened then was that the white media and the government used the sexual abuse of Aboriginal children but also the um, violence against Aboriginal women to justify really horrendous government policies so for me I saw that as media representations being violent but also not just being violent but silencing Aboriginal women and making it unsafe for us um, to have our voices heard on issues of violence um, and to talk about it in the way that we should be talking about it in which the background is the horrendous colonial violence um, in this country that has affected Aboriginal women. So um, that's how I really started to get interested in it. It was, largely came from a place where I see media as inherently violent um, but also unaccountable um, to communities and particularly to Aboriginal women. And I see it as them being complicit in hurting in hurting us more and, and being complicit in that violence. So that's how I, I started to get interested in it. Um, but I'm specifically looking at cases around, um, you know, Aboriginal women as victims of murder and homicide and the way media um, treats that. So, yeah. 
And uh, without revealing too much uh, just yet, uh, I'm very happy that uh, we will soon ha get to collaborate on a on a piece uh, that you will write about the concept of reparation from a from an Aboriginal perspective. Uh, would you maybe give us like a a little a little uh, uh, a short preview of what this piece will be about? Because I guess that's that's really part of this this conversation as well. So. Oh, definitely. Um, so there's been um, a large conversation around the concept of reparations um, in many different ways in Australia. Um, and it's based on the, you know, the fact that we're a very rich country um, and yet Aboriginal people in this country are still treated as, you know, second class citizens. Um, and so there's been movements over the history of Aboriginal activism to look at um, a form of represent, represent, reparations and compensation. An example is Pay the Rent, which originated from Uncle Robbie Thorpe down in Melbourne. Um, but it's basically um, looking at um, just the waves of disadvantage and dispossession that has been taken out um, against Aboriginal people, but also that's been used to benefit white Australia, you know? So we have a few, for example, we have a, um, a scandal over in Australia that happened in every state and territory where Aboriginal workers were basically treated largely as slaves. Um, it was a form of slavery in which we weren't paid properly. It's called stolen wages. And basically lifetime of wages were taken away, you know, and never seen by Aboriginal workers. Um, so that's just one example. And so if you don't, you weren't paid properly, and you're in a form of um, reservation, that mob were moved onto reservations and everything, how are you supposed to then, you know, um, help your family move forward? And, like, the intergenerational disadvantage that comes for that. So it'll be sort of looking at, I think, I guess, the reason why we need some form of reparations, but also what form that may take or what people in the past have looked at. Um, but really our major issue is the return of land. Um, okay, great. And um, perhaps one last thing. I mean, I guess that's uh, that's also uh, participating to multiply the moments as you were as you were talking about. But uh, uh, if we if we understand the question, perhaps a, l a little bit more literally, as uh, already uh, some people did and will do, uh, could you maybe tell us about the nineteen seventy two tent embassy, uh, Aboriginal tent embassy in uh, in Canberra? Because I, I feel that could also be a a pretty powerful moment that may maybe some of our listeners don't don't know about. Definitely. Um. So in nineteen seventy two, um, the Aboriginal tent embassy was founded, and it was basically in response to federal government assaults on whittling back land rights in the Northern Territory. Um, and so what happened was that mob from all over the country, a lot of them were very young, a lot of them were 17, 18, um, had history at that time of um, being dis dispossessed of their land and their country, but also at the time things, you know, like police violence and brutality were huge issues. Got in their cars, drove all the way down to Canberra to start this embassy, and it started under an under umbrella with four key players. Um, what happened after that is just it's been a continual protest um, across the ages um, and it's very symbolic because it stands right outside um, old parliament house and so I think it sort of comes into the fact that you know Aboriginal mob will never go away and this protest will never die it will continue um, because those threats to land rights have never changed they've always been there in different forms and it comes in different waves those threats so I think it's a it's a testament to the strength of Aboriginal communities that 
um, we're here and we're not going to go away. And I think it, it leads back into what I was saying before about presence. Um, because it's been, you know, they attempted to get rid of it because I remember even as far back as like 10 years ago, they wanted to get rid of it because it was ugly or shabby. It was an, an eyesore to Australia. But that's what we have to have. We have to have something that shows that the black mark on Australia's reputation is its treatment of Aboriginal peoples. And that's the very sin at the heart of this, of this country, the original sin is the theft of land. So I really see it as an assertion of, of sovereignty, um, an assertion of the fact that this is Aboriginal land and it has never been ceded, an assertion of the fact that Aboriginal people are not going to just give it away um, because they never gave it away. We never gave it away 200 years ago. We, it was taken from us. Um, so I think that's what the, the ten embassy means to me. And you're right, it is a true moment of decolonisation because it's, it's the threat and it's about repatriate. To me, decolonisation is specifically about land and repatriation of land and country because we are so intrinsically linked with our bodies to land and country. Um, so I think you're right, it, it is a true moment of um, decolonisation because it was about putting black bodies on the line for black land. And that message has never changed throughout the 40, 50 years that, that the Ten Embassy has, has stood there and it still stands there. There's a fire right in the middle of, of it that has never been extinguished. Um, and I think that's what's going to continue in Aboriginal Australia. There's a fire in our hearts that will never be extinguished. Um, regardless of whatever future waves they're going to send our way, so I think that was okay. <laughs> Great, and uh, we have the we have the next generation uh, with us as well, which is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Amy, for uh, taking this uh, this time. Thank you. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.